As expected, the Federal Reserve's various hawks came out this week flapping their wings, really flapping their gums, in response to the market's response to last week's October CPI report. Now, the markets took the CPI report not as the first sign that consumer prices are coming down, but as a compelling signal that what markets have been pricing all along, that this was always a supply shock transitory, and at some point it was going to start to reverse, which the CPI made a compelling case for. Not definitive, but a compelling case for. Not so, says all of these hawks suddenly this week. Again, as we expected, it began right away, late well, it's Monday morning in Australia with Christopher Waller, major hawkish comments, Rates are going to go up, not just, they're going to go way up and stay up for a long time. Uh, Lael Brainerd, kind of uh, somewhat hawkish. Uh, Loretta Mester from Cleveland said that rates were just beginning to move into restrictive territory, implying that rates are going to go higher still and need to go higher still. And then yesterday, the hawk of all hawks, Mr. James Bullard, who said that while the policy rate has increased substantially this year, it has not yet reached a level that can be justified as sufficiently restrictive. To attain a sufficiently restrictive level, the policy rate will need to be increased further. What is restrictive here? Now, Bullard Goff dusted off something called the Taylor Rule, which we'll get into a little bit later, in order to suggest that the at minimum, he said, the Fed funds rate needs to get up to five, maybe five and a quarter percent. It needs, by the Taylor rule count, to get really up into maybe five, six, seven percent in order to get inflation, what they think is inflation, back under control. So how did markets react to this week of hawks? Uh, all these comments from the Federal Reserve, all of them suggesting that uh, at, the, at the very least, um, inflation or federal funds rates have to go much higher. Uh, the 10-year treasury yield is basically unchanged with where it was last week post-CPI. So as far as the long end of the treasury yield curve and other curves as well, like Germany for, in particular, which we won't get into today, I've covered that before, but the 10-year treasury long end of the yield curve, not buying the hawkishness. Uh, you go further up the yield curve to the two-year treasury, the two-year was down about 30-some basis points in the wake of the CPI. Over this week, it's gotten back about 12, which is sort of not really compelling there. Most of the effect was at the very front, as you would expect. The 12-month bill is almost back to where it was last previous Wednesday, CPI, whereas the six-month bill is at it and maybe a little bit above, depending on how trading works out today. So really, the Fed's influence has only been at the really very front end of the curve. And again, the question here is all about the word restrictive. And these massive inversions is what, were, what really was most remarkable about today's or this week's trading. Despite all these hawkish comments, all that really happened was it added more to these curve inversions. And there's another curve that is trying to force its way into this same conversation in the same way, which we'll get to toward the end of this video. It's an important curve that we all should be paying attention to, and it is so very close to flipping into what would be another really key warning sign against this Fed hawk position. But before we get into all that, of course, I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. 
Our website is eurodollar.university. There you can find membership opportunities, including research subscriptions. Uh, uh, this week we're running a special Black Friday or pre-Black Friday celebratory uh, discount of our research products that are available at Markets Insider Pro, which include Tracy Schuchart's Energy and Material Weekly, along with Stephen Van Meter's Market Insider or Market Timer, Momentum Timer Pro. Sorry, Steve, <laughs> getting it wrong. Steve Van Meter's Momentum Timer Timer Pro. And if you buy the Markets Insider Pro over, or if you buy market a subscription to Markets Insider Pro over at that website, you also get a special discount code for our daily deep dive analysis, which is available at Eurodollar University's website. All the information you need eurodollar.university. So the issue here is the word restrictive. It's not even really about monetary policy as it is how we classify monetary policy. And that was what James Bullard's point was. What he was trying to say is we need some way to measure what this interest rate policy strategy is doing. Where, where is it relative to what we need it to be? And so he dusted off the Taylor Rule, which is something that John Taylor invented about almost 30 years ago, 1993, Stanford economist. And what he essentially said was that we need to evaluate the federal funds rate, presuming the federal funds rate is the most important variable here because all of the stuff is subjective. But essentially, we're going to evaluate the federal funds rate based upon where the calculated rate of actual inflation is compared to the target and make a minor adjustment compare, uh, comparing economic output to potential, the output gap. And that's gonna, we're gonna throw this into a really haphazard formula that Taylor came up with. And that will suggest not only where is monetary policy, where does it need to be? Does the, does the federal funds rate need to go higher or lower? And it sounds, again, like everything else in Federal Reserve, banking, central banking, modern monetary economics, which is not so much about money as it is about psychology. How can we classify this monetary policy rate rather than actually evaluate the monetary system at all? Why are we looking at inflation and GDP and output and output gaps when we should be just looking at the monetary system? Well, to ask the question is to answer it. As I mentioned in previous videos, the Fed actually doesn't really do money. And if you don't do money, how can you evaluate monetary policy? But it's more than just evaluating monetary policy. What does monetary policy actually represent? We're told that a rising rate represents restrictive policy. And who tells us that? Well, it was Loretta Mester and James Bullard and Christopher Waller. But they're the ones raising the rates. They're the ones who are classifying their own policies and saying, this policy is restrictive. And nobody actually stops and thinks about, is this policy actually being restrictive? Now, throughout the Federal Reserve's history, as I mentioned previously, and I want to mention again, that's really how monetary policies actually work. Where the Federal Reserve says, we're doing something Nobody really knows what they're doing, and then the Fed calls that something whatever it intends to do. So, for example, I mentioned Edwin Dale back when the Fed last raised rates. When he was talking about everybody laughing at the Fed in 1969, what he said was the Fed hurls thunderbolts and nothing happens. It raises the discount rate 
furiously buys and sells treasury bills, watches arcane things like Fed funds, net borrowed reserves, and bank credit, tells the world solemnly that, by golly, it means business in stopping inflation. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The Fed was saying in 1969 it was being restrictive. We are going to stop inflation. And inflation kept on going for another dozen years or so. Because it's not what the Fed says. At the time, the markets agreed with what Edwin Dale was saying. As he said, businessmen were getting loans furiously regardless of the interest rate. And the markets were pricing higher growth, nominal growth and inflation expectations. Rates were generally rising through the late 1960s, right on into the 1970s. The market said the Fed was wrong about its stance. It said we're being restrictive. It used that word over and over again. And the market said you're not being restrictive because the policies you're pursuing are not slowing down the monetary system, let alone the entire economy. But here's the, I mean, just to put a really huge emphasis on the point that I'm trying to make, let's go back in time a little bit further to what might be the all-time example of what I'm trying to talk about here, that the Fed is mostly about talk. Thinking about what Ben Bernanke said in 2015, he said it was 98% talk because he couldn't help himself putting a quantitative number on something that is otherwise meaningless. But here, if you were to hear that 1,456 banks had just failed during a year with deposits of $716 million, would you think the Federal Reserve has done a good job? Well, in the, year, in the 1932 uh, annual report for the Federal Reserve Board, that's the case that they tried to make. What, what they said was during the year 1932, 1,456 banks with deposits of $716 million suspended operations. Not a good thing. Compared to, though, 2,294 banks having deposits of $1.7 billion in 1931. And that $1.7 that's a lot of money in 1931 and 1932. So what they were saying was, we must have done a good job because only about 1,500 banks had failed this year and only about 700 million in deposits were probably lost. Not all of them were lost, but a good chunk of them were. But here's what... The, in the annual report, evaluating monetary policy for the year 1932, which was the absolute worst of the entire Great Depression. So maybe the worst year in, in American economic monetary financial history. Here's what the Federal Reserve said about its monetary policies. During 1932, the Federal Reserve system continued to pursue the policy of monetary ease which it had followed since the beginning of the Depression. Let me say that again. Continue to pursue the policy of monetary ease, which it had followed since the beginning of the Depression. These people will always clarify or will always classify their own policies in the manner in which they intend them. The Federal Reserve saw interest rates going down in 1929, 30, and 31 into 32 and said, our policies are monetary ease. We're being accommodative. And how many times have we heard the same thing during the era of QE? QE is massive monetary easing. Is there any evidence that any monetary easing happening happened? Not in the real economy, certainly not in the marketplace. 
but it's called monetary easing. Why? Because central bankers get to classify their own policy. The difference was back in 1969, as in 1932, the public laughed at these statements. They laughed at the Fed in 69 saying it's being restrictive because obviously it wasn't. There were a bunch of clueless bureaucrats that the public could see were a bunch of clueless bureaucrats. In 1932, amidst widespread devastation and breadlines, the Federal Reserve said, our policies are monetary ease and have been since the beginning of the worst depression in human history. The public simply ignored. The politicians took the Fed's keys away. There's no reason to believe these people, but yet nowadays we do. If the Fed says we need the federal funds rate to be restrictive, we simply take them at face value. But you know who doesn't take them at face value? Markets. Just like in the 1960s, interest rates were rising, contravening the Fed's restrictive policy nonsense. And by interest rates, I mean these longer end bond yields, which price, as Irving Fisher showed way, way, way back when, growth and inflation expectations. The market was expecting interest rates to continue to rise because the Fed was not controlling inflation. In fact, the Fed had nothing to do with inflation one way or the other. The monetary system was creating an excess of money, which the markets knew because the creators of that excess money were the ones raising nominal growth and expectations, selling their U.S. treasuries. In the 1930s, it was exactly the opposite. The Federal Reserve said it pursued a policy of great monetary easing. The markets knew the difference. Obviously, with banks' failures, it was much easier to, uh, to see and understand. But either way, what did interest rates do? They fell. Bond yields fell during the 1930s. They went lower, lower growth and inflation expectations from those who are actually in the monetary system. And the reason interest rates went lower, because... In a depressionary, deflationary environment, safety and liquidity are prioritized. And U.S. Treasuries in particular are the safest, most liquid instruments. So interest rates on Treasuries, as well as other liquid instruments, declined throughout the 1930s, despite the Fed claiming all throughout we pursued a policy of monetary easing, which sounds familiar. The age of QE. We pursued a policy of monetary easing. And what did the markets demand? Only more safe liquid assets. Which brings us, of course, to 2022. Bullard, Mester, all the Federal Reserve speakers say the Fed is being restrictive or going to start being restrictive. In fact, Bullard said we aren't even there yet. Yet we also had to acknowledge, thus far, he said, the change in monetary policy stance appears to have had only limited effects on observed inflation, but market pricing suggests disinflation is expected in 2023. That's putting it mildly, don't you think, given the level of inversions. So how can we reconcile, how can he reconcile what he's actually stating? He's saying that monetary policy isn't even got restrictive yet, yet markets are pricing as if something is actually restricting the economy. Interest rates are planning on going lower, regardless of whether or not the Fed thinks they are. Because the Fed controlling the, only the short end is why the only the short end moved this week. The market is projecting lower interest rates like the 1930s, 
not like the 1970s. So the Fed is trying to control it, what it sees as inflation that the market says is not only under control, we're swung entirely into the other direction. Not only have we swung entirely into the other direction, market prices in these inversions all over the world, including, as I said yesterday, or the day before, Germany's unprecedented inversion. We are facing the opposite risks than from what the Fed and all of these hawks are saying. And the more hawkish they talk, the more the markets that price inflation and nominal growth expectations are ignoring them as even James Bullard had to acknowledge. And there's one more market that we have to, that has entered the chat. One more market that has suggested something else is going on, not inflation. And I'm talking of course about crude oil. The crude oil futures curve can make another compelling case about economic as well as monetary fundamentals. Now today, today is the 18th of November, it's a Friday. And during the morning, We've seen, in fact, as I'm talking right now, the front two months, which is the December 22 contract and the January 2023 contract, it's now six cents into contango, which we shouldn't even be talking about contango. Um, first of all, why? what is contango? Why shouldn't we talk about contango? Contango versus backwardation. Backwardation is when you see prices that are lower in the future than they are today, which incentivizes producers and those who have whatever commodity, in this case, crude oil, to ship it into the market, put it into the market because the market needs it. There's a disincentive, an extreme disincentive in cases where supplies are tight to store oil because the, the price of oil in the future is lower than it is today. So given the supply constraints that are visible everywhere, you can see it in the, in the uh, industrial production numbers from the Federal Reserve, domestic production. The Energy and Information Administration production continues to be less than it was in January 2020. Obviously, OPEC, which has cut oil production, actually cut quotas for a couple times and talking about more quotas being cut, doesn't matter. Despite the fact that oil, crude oil, diesel, record low inventories, gasoline, low inventories, here we are talking about contango in the curve when it should be the farthest thing from it. The curve should be steeply in backwardation as it was a few months back. Now the contango that's going today, that's priced right now, some of that's technical. This is the contract role where the December 2023 contract is coming off the board, which means the January 2023 will soon be the front month. But even so, when you look at the January 23 compared to the February 23, which will then be the first front month spread, it's flat too. And then you go out a couple more months and the spread, the backwardation level is exceedingly small for these perceived supply characteristics. So even though contango today doesn't look to be genuine contango for lack of a better term, the oil market is telling you something important too. Despite the most unfavorable supply uh, conditions imaginable, low record low inventories, production not coming up, all these things, we're, we're, we're within a whisker of contango on the front end of the curve anyway, which tells us the market is perceiving troubles in both demand as well as liquidity. The very things that James Bullard can't figure out for all his attention to the word restrictive and the useless Taylor rule, he doesn't see, well, he sees the market saying, 
We disagree with your, your position on risks as well as this idea that interest rates are the sole factor for determining what is and what is not relevant to the overall economy. That's really the point here. We're taught and led to believe the Fed and its interest rate policy is the only variable when time and time again we see that the real variable is Fed speaking about its policy, which means the actual stuff that matter, you go to the markets for that. It's been that way all along. Unfortunately, we can't laugh at the Fed because the stakes here are way, way too high. Listen to the markets and what they are telling you. They're telling you that after last week's CPI, which didn't start the conversation of disinflation and transitory, it merely confirmed or made the compelling case that that's exactly the direction we're going. And the markets have pr priced further, further and further and further in that downward direction. I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. As always, huge thank you to Eurodollar University members. If you're interested in joining them, Check us out at the website, eurodollar.university, as well as all the Eurodollar University and Markets Insider Pro subscribers. We really appreciate your business. And if you're interested, again, I said, Black pre-Black Friday Thanksgiving holiday sale details at marketsinsiderpro.com. Until next time, take care.